Paul, we have had a couple really tough weeks in the United States with two more mass shootings. When the first mass shooting happened in Atlanta that killed eight people, including six Asian women, you and I decided to have this episode to talk about racism and discrimination against Asian Americans. And then before we could even record this, another shooting happened in Boulder, Colorado. It's just heartbreaking that mass shootings have become the norm in this country. But we're gonna focus on the Atlanta shooting because it has sparked a sort of reckoning with Asian American racism. You know, one Asian woman is quoted as saying, I feel like we're the invisible forgotten community. There's a lot of truth to that, and we don't want that community to be forgotten. So let's discuss. This is The Modern White Man, the podcast where myself, Paul Johnson, and me, Ken Lawrence, discuss how to be a modern white man who is anti-racist, anti-sexist, and understands his role in creating an equitable society. You know, racism and discrimination against Asians in this country is nothing new. We have covered the institution of slavery and how racist policies have targeted freed slaves and black people from the beginning of this country to today. And there is a similar history and similar policies against Asians. You know, the black-white binary in the United States is so visceral and violent with the clear institution of slavery and all of these policies that racism against blacks that is talked about the most. But with that, we cannot forget to talk about racism and discrimination against other races and identities as well. And, and we're guilty of that on this podcast. We really focused on the black-white binary. But in being a modern white man who is anti-racist, anti-Asian hate is one of the several forms of American racism that must be acknowledged and stopped. And as that Asian woman said, how she feels like they are the invisible forgotten community, we can't let that happen, especially with the increased violence and rhetoric that has been brought about because of a virus of all things. You know, COVID-19, it originated in Wuhan, China, and people are blaming Asians for this. People in power have referred to COVID-19 as the Wuhan virus, the China virus, and the one that I find the most deplorable and racist, the Kung flu. And because of this, according to PolitiFact, the respected center for the study of hate and extremism, anti-Asian hate crimes rose from 49 incidents in 2019 to 122 in 2020. So there's a clear increase. And I just have to say, if there's a, a center for the study of hate and extremism, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, there's a problem. here, yeah, right? right. Like a right. clear problem. Probably it, millions of dollars being put into that every year. Right. Yeah. And I, and I like how, you know, we are reckoning with racism against really all people, right? Because at the end of the day, what we're talking about is xenophobia or the fear of people who are different from us. And racism and the concept of race was really designed to do that, right? It was it was designed to separate us mm -hmm. as human beings, when in reality, we are all genetically biologically pretty much the same and it was designed to create hierarchies and justify just deplorable acts yeah and we're still seeing that today with deplorable acts against people who are of different races than us yeah you know and locally for you and me here in minnesota in one city an asian american family found the words china virus burned into their lawn in another city, a couple was followed out of a store by a man who shoved the husband and yelled that they should take the coronavirus and leave. In yet another city, a resident of Hmong descent and his wife found a note in their townhouse door accusing them of infecting us with your disease. Finally, in another city, a woman walking on a trail was physically attacked after racial slurs were hurled at her. The worst part is that Asian Americans have been sounding the alarm for a while, worried by the increase in anti-Asian rhetoric and violence that something like a shooting could happen, and devastatingly it did. Even seeing that someone in Minnesota, a resident of Hmong descent, you know, is not from China, and there is a note accusing them of infecting us with your disease, and that's just an example of how we lumped every people from different ethnicities an Asian descent into one just Asian race. And so it's just indiscriminately being blamed on people. And Asian Americans are feeling this, this fear and, and feeling like they're being targeted. It doesn't matter where they're even from. 
And as our listeners know by this point, you know, a cornerstone of our identity work is understanding history so we can have context to the origins and reasons of racism, discrimination, and disparities. You know, hopefully our listeners out there kind of can see why we think that's important in setting that base. And so it helps to explain these events we are seeing today and helps us to be anti-racist and dismantle racist policies and racist ideas. So let's discuss a high-level overview of the history of Asian relations in this country. So Paul, where I want to start with this is with the opium wars of all things, and you'll see kind of how this connects. So there were two opium wars. The first was from 1839 to 1842, and the second was from 1856 to 1860. So to give you context of when this was happening, in the United States, this is the time of the lead-up to the Civil War. You'll remember all of those slavery compromises and the abolitionist movement that we discussed. That is when these opium wars take place. It was actually the year that the opium wars ended was the year our Civil War begins. So this war took place in China, and the first war was fought between China and Britain, and the second, France joined up with Britain and fought against China as well. Essentially, these European nations were desperate to exploit the riches of Asia. So they began a trade of bringing in opium to China for silk, tea, and silver, among other things. And when China attempted to end the trade by making the narcotic illegal, Britain and France said no and began these wars. This literally arose from China's attempts to suppress the opium trade, where these foreign traders, primarily British, had been illegally exporting opium, mainly from India to China. This resulted in widespread addiction in China and was causing serious social and economic disruption. And when the second opium war started, the British were just finding an excuse to renew hostilities because they wanted to extend their trading rights. They got a little taste after the first war and they wanted more. And the French were essentially like, hey, I want to get a piece of this too. And so China lost both of these wars It resulted in their country being open to European and American business interests. These Western interests gained commercial privileges, legal and territorial concessions. They forced China to sign ridiculous treaties, furthering the Western country's ability to plunder their country of their resources. And, of course, they made the trade of opium legal, by the way. So why did we start with these opium wars? Because one of the results was increased immigration to the United States. Also, how it is once again economic greed and power hoarding from European white countries. You know, remember, the racial hierarchy that we discussed exists at this point. So this war, the unjust treaties that China was forced to sign, put them in huge debt. That, combined with floods and drought during the same time period, caused a lot of hardships in China. Not to mention the opium impacts on society. So the economic prospect of going to the United States was twofold. One was the gold rush, and the other was building the transcontinental railroad. Okay, so with the gold rush, I mean, you know of the gold rush. We hear about it, the California gold rush. You think of the San Francisco 49ers. They're named after 1849. There was a huge gold rush. And so there was Chinese who were fleeing this terrible situation in China to come to the gold rush because they saw an economic opportunity. And there was racially charged violence from white miners to the Asian arrivals immediately. Like California did not want Asians to join the gold rush. And they even imposed a foreign miners tax of $3 per month only targeting Chinese miners. So by 1870, Chinese miners had paid $5 million to the state of California via this tax. Yet even with that, discrimination against them only rose. The violence, and we know about violence from white folks against people of color that we talked about with slavery, reconstruction, Jim Crow, Just like that, it went largely unpunished. I don't even know if we mentioned this, Paul, but in 1854, there was a Supreme Court case that ruled that Chinese, like blacks and Native Americans, were not allowed to testify in court. So it made it effectively impossible to seek justice without violence. So we had all these minors that came over. They were discriminated against. They had violence perpetuated against them, and they could do nothing about it, and it went largely unpunished. Well, yeah, that is just the story of oppression in this country, right? Of people who are continually oppressed and voice their concerns about it and nothing gets done and their concerns are dismissed. 
You know, so just imagine the anger and frustration that would come from that mm-hmm. of clear oppression, of clear injustices, and it's not taken seriously. And even like when you when they start saying, hey, these things are happening, it's almost like a trigger where we need the Supreme Court to step in mm-hmm. to make it illegal for them to be able to even testify. It almost takes it a step further in this country with all of these laws. You know, being ignored would be bad enough, right? But mm-hmm. that's not enough. Let's make it like federally impossible for them mm-hmm. to even testify in court. It's mm-hmm. just, it's how can we make this permanent? How can we make this official? It's almost like a defense mechanism just to maintain that power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I feel like also you know, white supremacy is just like, how much can we get away with until we cross some threshold to like something really bad? It almost knows what that threshold is and it toes the line until there's enough kind of pushback or resistance. The Civil Rights Act is a good example. But, yeah. You know, the country just kind of allowed things to get really, really bad up until a point. It's like, all right, fine, let's do the Civil Rights Act. But then, of course, we all know like it helped, but it didn't address the real root of the problem. So it's just, it's it's just this pattern of let's get away with as much as we possibly can until things get really bad and then incorporate some laws or some policies to to kind of smooth things over, if you will. And then we'll wait another couple decades until things get really bad again. Yeah, and the thing that really sticks out to me and why starting with the opium wars I think is such a powerful place to start with this discrimination in the first place is that these are individuals who are fleeing hardship that was caused by these Western powers who wanted to take advantage of a country. They were trying to essentially take advantage of making a mass drug addiction problem in a country. And then when that country said, hey, we're going to make this illegal, this is causing some serious harm to individuals, to our economy, and they started a war over it. To, to face that type of discrimination after being pushed out by your fellow, you know, the, the Americans were in with the British and French on exploiting the country. It's just mm-hmm. another level of grossness, you know? Yeah, and the way racism works is it slaps these labels on people, these negative labels on people that follow people throughout history. Mm -hmm. Like you're talking about the the opium, the drugs, you know, put this label on Asians, which made it again, very easy to justify any sort of discrimination against them. So, so that is how racism works. You, you slap these negative labels on people in order to dehumanize them and say they're less than look at, look at what's wrong with them in order to make it easier. I think for people, I think, I think, Deep down, we all have morals and ethics, right? And so even the sort of most evil people who are making rulings like this and being discriminatory towards people, they have morals and ethics, but the system of racism makes it easier for people to discriminate against other people because it dehumanizes them with these labels, you know? Because you're like, well, look at all these problems that they have, right? Yeah, and it's like, goes right to the creation of race. We had to justify the slave trade and slavery because it was like, man, I do not feel good about this. Mm -hmm. But they need this. They're being helped. This is better for them Mm -hmm. in their horrible home countries. And you can trace it, and you're right. It continues throughout the history to today. And again, kind of back to what I said before, it's all about xenophobia. It's all about this fear of difference. So as this is going on, one of the biggest American feats of all time begins building the transcontinental railroad. So that was joining the eastern and western halves of the United States. And to complete such a feat, it required a lot of labor. And the thing about this work is that it was backbreaking, hazardous work. So white workers simply didn't want to do it. It was too hard, it was too dangerous, and the company wanted white workers. But the response to job postings was so low that they had to look to others. But the company did not want to hire Chinese. They thought they were unable to do this kind of work. But slowly and reluctantly, because they had no other choice, they brought on Chinese workers. And they saw that not only could they do it, but they were excellent workers. And to get the project done in time to meet Congress's deadline, they even went to China to bring over more workers. So soon there was roughly 15 to 20,000 Chinese immigrants working on this transcontinental railroad. And they were working from the west to east. Do you know who was employed from the east to west? The only ones that they could get to say yes? 
Uh, I, you're looking at me like I should know this, but I don't know this. <laughs> <laughs> it's it was white the, people. It was the Irish. Oh, the Irish. Do you remember when you said there was a point when Irish weren't considered white and they were mm-hmm. really discriminated against in the East? Another just way to create this division among people. The Irish were the only people on the East Coast that they mm. could get to make it go from east to west so like you had this huge feat done by people who are suppressed and you know the white people were like that's way too hard that's Mm -hmm. way too dangerous i'm not doing it but the irish and chinese are the only people they could reluctantly get to do it their labor and their sacrifices that they made it made this quote unquote american feat possible and of course they were paid 30 to 50 percent lower wages than whites for not only the same but the most dangerous jobs I mean, I think it's, again, important to point out that the irony or the paradox or whatever you want to call it, that America is, is for white people, it's, 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 a, it's a white supremacy nation. And, you know, white supremacy, of course, means white is better and best. Yet the country is built by people other than white, right? Like, yeah, the, the infrastructure of it. I mean, we all know that black folks because of slavery, but this is this is new to me for the most part, mm-hmm. that something that is a very foundational infrastructure to the, the country was built by Asian Americans. Yeah. And people that were looked down upon and people who were maltreated and paid less and weren't even considered American, just like slaves, like you were saying. Mm -hmm. Like there were people who thought that they were less than white people inherently. Mm -hmm. And that's the labor that built this. And you're Mm -hmm. right. This white supremacy is the owners of these companies are the ones who take credit. They're the ones that we talk about. They just put all these laborers aside. Mm -hmm. Do you think like after this harrowing feat that the white Americans didn't just open up their arms in a gesture of national? solidarity to be like hey you know you you all are really hard workers we were wrong you know what more great things can we do together no like the exact opposite happened where now that they got what they needed the gold rush was over the railroad was finished they did not want chinese people living in the u.s anymore (laughs) so in 1882 the united states passed the chinese exclusion act This was the first significant law that restricted immigration into the United States. A part of this was that many Americans on the West Coast started to experience declining wages and economic ills, and they needed a scapegoat and blame the Chinese for them. So part of this act was to placate worker demand and also prevalent concerns about maintaining, quote, white racial purity. So this initial law, the Chinese Exclusion Act, of 10 years was extended an additional 10 years after. It suspended Chinese immigration and declared Chinese immigrants ineligible for naturalization, so they could not become citizens. It also required Chinese residents in the U.S. to carry special certificates of residence that had to be vouched for by a credible white witness. That, that's another really clear example to me for those who may question white supremacy. Like this is a law that an Asian American had to have a card that any white person could have vouched for and just signed. Like the neighbor down the street, if they were deemed white, could sign a card and then they're good to go. I mean, that one really stuck out to me. And if they didn't have it, they were sentenced to hard labor and deportation. So that's kind of like the vagrancy laws. Remember we talked about that? The vagrancy laws after slavery where they didn't allow slaves to have work besides signing unjust contracts to till land. And if they refused to do it, they were arrested for vagrancy and then forced into it anyway and and criminalized. Like it's very similar to that. Yeah, I'm noticing a lot of parallels in how racism and white supremacy works the same with all the different races. So I can understand why that woman said we're the forgotten community. And of course, we don't want to get into this, like, who deserves more justice and who deserves more attention when it comes to racism. Like, of course, everyone deserves the same amount of attention and we just need to dismantle racism across the board, right? However, I mean, the other parallel that came to mind was this whole we want you, then we don't want you thing. Mm-hmm. I remember you talked about that with the South. Right. Right. The South with black folks where, you know, they made made life miserable, of course, you know, for obvious reasons with slavery. And then even after slavery was abolished, then black folks wanted to go to the North for better jobs. Before that, the South made it very clear that they continued the legacy of 
anti-blackness and making life miserable and being very brutal towards black folks but then as soon as black folks are like ah oh, we're gonna go north they're like what no 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 no. Yeah. actually we want you we need you we yeah. need you because otherwise our whole economic system will crumble but then of course anyone who stayed they still you know black folks were still treated horribly mm-hmm. so clearly they don't want them but they do want them and in the case of africans of course we know that they were brought over not by their own volition whereas some asian immigrants came over voluntarily but either way once folks who are from different countries non-european countries i should say except that you know the irish at one point when they get in this country <laughs> it's like the first instinct of white supremacy is like how can we exploit you yeah how can we take advantage of you? Because, again, the, the lens is looking at these folks as less than and exploitable. And then how can we kind of, like, spit you up and throw you out? But then it sort of, it like, runs into its own problem. Like, well, now, but now we, we wanted them, and now they're here, and we don't know how to get rid of them. Mm-hmm. And so, it, so then, the, I don't know. It's like, then we make life absolutely miserable. Yeah. And hope they leave. It's like, how can we maintain and grow our power in ways that suits us in ways where mm-hmm. I don't have to humanize the things that give me this power, how I maintain mm-hmm. it. It's again, it's dehumanization. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they had to tell themselves that they were inferior. They had to tell themselves so that they could maintain this power. But yeah. And then what do you do with humans? They're human beings, mm-hmm. you know, I can't help but think of this in the context of the workplace. I mean, we're seeing, especially since George Floyd was murdered, like an unprecedented movement towards more DEI work, more diversity. And it actually kind of stops there. And that's kind of my point. Like, yeah, lots of companies are talking about diversity, bringing in more people of color. You know, their advertisements have more people of color. They're saying we're becoming more diverse. But but I think there's a sense of like, but we really don't want you. Like, mm-hmm. we're doing this in a performative way because... Because maybe we feel a sense of guilt and also, but I think at the end of the day, it's about profit. I really do. I think it's about making it seem like we are diverse will make us more profitable, but we are not going to change the culture of the organization to make it more inclusive. Like the majority of companies doing this, you'd say? Yeah. Yeah. And so it's this like, we want you, but we don't want you. Like we want you for our own benefit, for, for increased profit, so we can say that we're being really progressive. But then when you get here as an employee, you know, your life will be miserable. Yeah, we don't really want to change what we've been doing forever. Because, yeah, if deep down, I think a lot of people, it's hard to get past that. We're going to have to change the way we've been doing things Mm -hmm. forever so that people from different backgrounds, cultures, races, experiences can also be their authentic selves here and thrive to do that's really hard. Mm-hmm. Like it's a long, you know, you have to change workplace cultures. I've seen it done well a few times and I've seen it done really poorly mm-hmm. many, many more like you're saying. Mm-hmm. I I agree. I think that it's just, it's so hard that it's like, oh, we better say something with all that's going on. We better do mm-hmm. something, but it's a long-term cult yeah. to change a culture. As we talked about in our culture, you know, culture is fluid as you pointed out and it can change, but it takes a long time because there's shared mm-hmm. kind of way that you do things. And it's, it's tough work, but to ensure that not just homogenous white folks can feel good, but that everybody can, there's growing pains all around. Mm-hmm. It's a long-term commitment. I've talked, I've been right. talking to a company about this recently where um, I keep on being like, what's your long-term strategy? How does this fit in the long-term strategy? What's after this training? You cannot stop mm-hmm. at this training. Like if you if mm-hmm. like if you stop at this training, there could be more harm done than good. Like yep. you have to embrace this and embracing it's hard. Yeah. And it means you have to stop production and, and you lose profits. Yeah. And that's why I think most organizations don't invest in that long-term commitment because their their priority is profit and growth and expansion which is the, the sort of imperialism, colonialism way. Mm-hmm. And so, so we're, we're, we're so entrenched in, in that mindset mm-hmm. that it, it makes it seem not even imaginable that we'd actually slow down production, take a break from some things because we need to look at ourselves, which is, which is I think we, we talked about that during the Reconstruction episode. America never did that. Yeah, right. You know, yeah. we, and we still continue to avoid that sort of let's slow down and like talk about like what's happening mm-hmm. internally here. 
And yeah. It refuses to do that because the ultimate goal is not creating community or building humanity among people or dismantling anything that is destructive among people. The ultimate goal with white supremacy is profit, power, and gain. And so I think to bring this, I always try to think, bring this back to white men, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like that is something we've been socialized and taught, right? Yeah. Like it, and, and of course, you and I or some other white men might be listening, maybe aren't overtly going down that route. It's still something that, that we, we have to reckon with. We need to recognize and know that sort of our default that we've been socialized into is like, is that the profit progress and, and something like talking about, you know, how people are doing and, and, and community stuff. Ah, oh, that's just like soft you yeah. know, emotional yeah. stuff that is, that's a waste of time. Yeah. And, and with the reconstruction example, I remember during that episode, we were excited because we were like, we have to deconstruct reconstruction. We have to make sure that doesn't happen again because the, the reason that reconstruction was so flawed and messed up so hard is because white people just gave up. And it was really hard to reintegrate all 4 million-ish slaves back into society, change the systems, make it more equitable. All these things we're talking about again on the West Coast that was going on, get rid of all those. But it was extraordinarily hard. It would take more time, more money. We gave up. And eventually the North was like, listen, yeah, we'll leave you alone, South, do whatever. And then that led to Jim Crow. I almost have been feeling like that lately, that I've been seeing signs of that because with George Floyd, with the shooting in Atlanta, so now there's a lot of raised awareness about discrimination against Asians in this country. And people are like, enough about race already. It's kind of what I've started mm. to see. And people are starting to, to be deflated because it's really hard. And there are so many ways mm. that racism exists and discrimination exists. And we're at a reckoning point again where if we do that again and say, this is really hard, my goodness, harder than I thought, and organizations can say that and individuals can say that, then we're not going to make true valued mm. progress, which is why we have to keep going. Mm. And it's it's just so easy to give up. I, I just have been mm -hmm. seeing that. It's yeah, and, I, and I, I wonder, part of me questions, is it really about it being hard? Because, I mean, think about, you know, founding this country was hard. Mm -hmm. Like, it was really hard work. So I, I think it's within people and white folks to do hard things. I think it's more of like, it's sort of this like, what's in it for me? Mm. I think people, I think we and, and white folks and back from reconstruction and throughout history have given up because they're like, there, there's no benefit for me here. You know, like, what am I getting out of this? Yeah. And I'm reallocating all my time and resources to help these other people when like, I want to be actually be building wealth for something that benefits me. Mm -hmm. And so I think if we're ever going to see any sort of shift or movement on something, big things like systemic racism, white supremacy, we need to stop thinking about, and I'm talking about like white men and especially just white folks in general, like we need to stop thinking about like, well, what's, what's in it for me? Mm -hmm. And be like, what's in it for other people? Yeah. Even redefining the idea of power. So you and I have a episode coming out after this where we talk about, hey, what are some examples that this does benefit white men? Because you're right. I think white men see either the opposite of white supremacy is black supremacy, as we talked about. And then white men, white people who are accustomed to power are going to be in subservient roles. And that's not the case. Mm -hmm. Also looking at it like when society is better, you will do better. But it's harder to see that big picture for some reason because I think a lot of people are like, what's in my bank account? What's in my job security? Am I gonna be able to have that lake place? Because I'm not sacrificing any of that stuff mm -hmm. and everybody wants me to sacrifice that because people think I'm a terrible person. Mm -hmm. But you don't have to sacrifice any of those things. You have to redefine what power means and think about if society is better for everybody, that impacts everybody positively, mm -hmm. including white men like you and me. And we have to redefine power that way. It's stepping away from individualism, which is really hard mm -hmm. to do. It's really hard for Americans, but it's really hard for humans in general. I think it's in our evolution DNA, like DNA step one, survive, you know? Yeah. And, and we have to look at it as we're not hunter-gatherers anymore. We're all in this together. And it sounds so cheesy because you hear it, it means nothing. But like you have mm -hmm. to, we have to think about if we are going to benefit you or my lives, then we have to help everyone. Yeah, it begs, and it begs the question of like that easy question of what is the meaning of life? And yeah. we're so ethnocentric, and you know, for those for those of us who have grown up in the United States, we just we just surround with messaging of of 
gain more money and resources and things and and that will bring you happiness just like clearly isn't true and there's even research to back that up but that's what's the big barrier is right like you said like it it feels like to invest in things like people in poverty or or equality and things like that you you have to give up your resources and money and time and maybe that's true yeah but but also like okay (laughs) like that's a good thing because because I think the alternative is the loss of our humanity and the loss of our our shared humanity. And yeah. I think that's more devastating, in my opinion, than losing some money. I think people are so afraid of that idea of losing money. Yep. You're right. Our country's been very much get the money, rise at the top, hold on to that, set your kids up, and that will continue for generations. And there is a trigger there to losing money. It's like ingrained in us. Yep. And if anybody thinks... We're going to set up these policies. I'm going to have to pay way more taxes. I'm going to lose half my income. Like trigger, trigger, trigger. Mm -hmm. I'm shutting down. I'm not supporting it. I'm going to get defensive. I've had to work hard. My father worked really hard. It's just, I, you know, that, that shift of mindset of like, you're not going to lose money, you know, and you're going to be okay. The community is going to be better. You're going to be better off, but it's hard to think that way. Mm -hmm. Let's continue here with the anti-Chinese sentiment, anti-Asian sentiment, because the two are really the same. As we mentioned, we kind of lumped all Asians together for prejudice sake and for the power's sake and the the racial hierarchy's sake. These days you hear Pacific Islanders, Indonesian, Korean, Japanese, Chinese, they're all different. Really everyone was lumped into Asians. And anti-Asian sentiment and discrimination expounded exponentially in World War II after Mm -hmm. Pearl Harbor. So one of the worst things the United States has ever done is Japanese internment camps. So from 1942 to 1945, it was the policy of the United States government that people of Japanese descent would be interred in isolated camps. They literally rounded up Japanese individuals and put them in camps. They were set up in California, Washington, and Oregon, and it was framed up as preventing espionage. This affected the lives of about 117,000 people, the majority of whom were American citizens during a war. I mean, anyone who was at least 116th Japanese was evacuated. 116th, including 17,000 children under 10, as well as several thousand elderly and handicapped. I, I just have to say that the, the funny thing that came to my mind was yet a white person who is one sixteenth native can feel like they have enough of their native tribe in them to have an opinion about the Washington Redskins and how they shouldn't change their name or like or get the benefits of native people. So yeah, it just the, the irony of that is just it kind of jumped out at me. But uh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and you know the the Japanese internment camps now are considered one of the most atrocious violations of American civil rights in the twentieth century. I can't think of a better example of something glossed over in American textbooks. Like, this was clearly omitted. Well, this is a really bad thing. I mean, we talk about civil rights violations in the South against blacks, and rightfully so, but we often overlook this. There is no better example of you don't look like us, you're not one of us. These were American citizens in wartime. And what, because they're from Asian descent? Even a seven-year-old Asian boy might be a spy? It's an example of how we look at people who aren't white. Did we do the same to Americans from German descent? All right, so get this, Paul. This is crazy. Many prisoners of war from Nazi Germany were sent to POW camps in rural America to farm. Did you know that? Did not know that. And they befriended their captors. So these were like individuals that lived in communities and owned farms. And these German POWs would work their farms to help with food production during the war. And they befriended their captors. They were invited over to family dinners. They drank beer together. These German POWs were let out all the time to go into town to go to movie theaters. They felt like family. So we connect with a Nazi POW who is a soldier who was fighting Americans and were brought here, we connect with them more than a 10-year-old Asian who was once your neighbor. And now that 10-year-old is in an internment camp because they might be a spy. Yeah, it, it's just, yeah, I mean, we'll never, we'll never tire of saying how baffling, ridiculous racism is. But, you know, one thing I was thinking about is, as you're talking and, and, and what we're seeing today and, and have has been going on for years in this country is, is Asian folks 
even when they're not even, like you said earlier, like when they're not even from China, are being targeted for hate crimes. So these are folks who are, first of all, not even from China. Sometimes they are. They're getting targeted by folks for hate crimes for something they're not even responsible for. They, they aren't responsible for the virus, and neither is China responsible for the virus, yet they're getting targeted for this. I mean, this, this is one of the clearest forms of white privileges that I can think of. So to turn it to you and I, we're both white men. Do you or me ever get targeted? Do, do we ever walk down the street and someone hurls racial slurs or says something towards us because they're connecting that like, oh, white men are doing all these mass shootings. Here's a white man. I'm going to direct hate and vitriol towards towards us. Has that ever happened to you? Never. Never. No, never. So, and, 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 and that's just one example of the countless horrible things that white people have done. Yet you and I are never grouped into other white people and then are the victim of, of hate and of that scapegoating, yeah. right? Like th- that is such a clear example of white privilege that we never have to endure. The only time we'd have to endure some sort of hate or vitriol is if we individually did something mm-hmm. towards someone else. We never have to worry about going out in the world and take the fall, if you will, for, for the, the faults or the shortcomings or the evils that somebody else or some other country did. Right. Yeah, white people are never grouped like that. No. You and I could be a soldier for the German army, and we would be looked at as individuals doing our duty. And yet Mm -hmm. every Japanese citizen in our state would be grouped together Mm -hmm. as a potential spy. Mm -hmm. That's so sad. It's just, it's a sad one to think about. And that's the part of racism where power is really important. I know we talked about earlier that, like, can there be racist ideas about white people? Yes. But what the very important distinction is, is that who, who is the dominant culture and who has the power? That makes our experience with racist ideas much different than anyone else. Can we ever be victim to a racist idea about white people? Yeah, sure. But do we ever face it at an institutional, systemic level? No. That's why when we talked about the definition, racist ideas, racist policies mm. combined is racism. Right. And yes, we could have racist. Someone could have a racist idea about a white man and they would say that to me and I would never feel threatened. Mm. I would never feel personally like I was in trouble, but that doesn't exist for any other race. Mm-hmm. You know. And why would you not feel, I'm just curious, why would you not feel threatened? I, I just think that I'm sure it has to do with the power that we've had. And I'm sure it has to do with there's no history of us being attacked mm-hmm. because of our race ever. It's mm-hmm. always been the other way around. I've never throughout my life. I haven't been institutionalized to seeing white men being targeted for anything. White mm-hmm. men being at risk of walking down the street for being a white man. It just mm-hmm. it doesn't happen. So mm-hmm. I went, you know, I might feel threatened if someone was a psychopath and was like, you know, coming at me Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, but I would never feel walking down the street at risk at all for, for my race or gender. Yeah. I feel the same way. I would never feel threatened in the big picture at a macro level Mm -hmm. because I know the whole system is got my back. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And will give me the benefit of the doubt and is designed to support me and designed to ensure that I maintain, be at the top of the top of the chain. I can't think of one instance where white men are targeted for being white men. And if there's, if sure there's a handful in this country, maybe, but it's probably so minuscule and not institutional. But you look at Asian Americans, there is a forgotten war against Chinese Americans that documents hundreds of forgotten riots, purges, lynchings in the 1800s that left thousands of Asians dead, wounded, or displaced. You mentioned one of these at one of our episodes, the um, gen- wow. the genocide that happened in San Francisco, was it? Or I can't remember off the top of my head. But you mentioned one where thousands of Asians are attacked and there were many lynchings. And we never talk about that. But we know of the lynchings of, you know, of black people. But people never talk about the thousands of those that were dead, wounded, or displaced. Mm-hmm. We don't have that. Like, mm-hmm. we don't have... Like, there, there's some kind of knowledge of seeing a history of this where you know that there's some kind of hate out there and these prejudices out there. I mean, it's, I think it's really important to bring up because assuming most of our listeners are desire to be anti-racist and to, to do something right in their community or their organization, whatever they're doing, 
And I think it's very easy to ignore or forget or overlook the needs of other races and to hone in on black folks solely. And of course, there's there's enough work there to, to take up all of your time and energy, but can't, we cannot forget about other races that, that are also the target of racist policies, mm-hmm. of racism, of anti antiness is that a word antiness antiness sure yeah so yeah i think it's just important when you think about digging into anti-racism and this is just kind of important to me as i think about it because my partner and i've been working through be an anti-racist which is the journal counterpart to how to be an Mm anti-racist and i'm just kind of right now thinking about anytime we we talk about those discussion questions my mind immediately goes to black folks yeah and again, not a not a bad thing per mm-hmm. se. I think we kind of talk about like how we might think about blackness or racism towards black people, and then we then we're, we're like, oh, we're done. Yeah. You know, we finished yeah. this prompt. But it's just kind of making me think out loud right now. Like, but we also should spend time on anti-ness towards Asian folks, towards Latinx folks, mm-hmm. and and you know, the, the unfortunately the broad breadth of racism that covers yeah. really anyone who's not white. And to me, covering this too, because I'm with you, the mind goes to black folks to me this is so helpful to have this conversation as trying to be an anti-racist because it really makes white supremacy and power hoarding and the idea of the racial hierarchy in different races it just adds another layer of how it's such a social construct and there's nothing inherent about it because if it was one group against one group only i mean that's one thing Mm -hmm. But being it's one group against multiple groups, so white folks what in, in America suppressing blacks the way that we've talked, suppressing Asian Americans the way we talk on the West Coast, suppressing Latinx folks in the territory that was Mexico, but after the Mexican-American War that we talked mm-hmm. about became Texas, New Mexico, California, mm-hmm. you know, all the suppression that the white folks did there. I mean, it just makes it seem almost more tangible mm. for me. Because it's, it's like, yeah, this is clearly to me, it helps me to see it's clearly about power. Mm-hmm. It's clearly about economic. I need to mm-hmm. maintain my status. I need to take care of myself. And I'm going to suppress anybody. And how can I make people seem different than me? Oh, I know. Yep. Race. Like the Irish. They're crazy for X, Y, Z. <laughs> and, you know, and, and uh, you know, the black folks that we talked about, Asian Americans, the stereotypes that, that all these things that were made up, mm-hmm. they clearly, it, to me, I think linking it to power is helpful in my work to be anti-racist mm-hmm. because it is just so, it's so widespread. It's so impactful. It's so a part of our culture. When you hear the word white supremacy, I think still that's something that people really get defensive about. Mm-hmm. And, and it just helps to see, no, white supremacy existed. Like you can see it in every corner of this country. Mm-hmm. What are the policies that we can do to ensure that white supremacy doesn't exist i don't know it helps mm-hmm. me yeah same here and i'm curious to ask you if we have, get into this discussion a little bit but i know we talk about anti-racism as like policies a lot mm-hmm. like but i think a lot of our listeners are like oh i don't have any access to policies so like how yeah you know, I, I want i don't want to make people feel like being anti-racist means it's about laws and policies because mm-hmm. yeah some people aren't in positions where they can influence that so so i guess just in the in the, in the context of our conversation with the hate towards asian americans what would what would it look like? What can our listeners yeah. do to be anti-racist right now? Yeah, that's you know, a- or what we, what we you and I do to be anti-racist? And I think what would be an example? I think of being anti-racist yeah. in a time like this. That's a great question. Great thing to point out because you're right. Everybody does have power, and policies mm-hmm. can mean so many different things. And remember, too, racist ideas having anti-racist ideas as being an anti-racist. So every, I think that's a lot of the work we're doing right now with thinking about the history and, and our identity work is like we want to make anti-racist ideas by recognizing mm-hmm. institutions, recognizing that hate and discrimination exists. But the policy piece, my mind immediately went to the workplace because that's mm-hmm. something that I mean, most people are invested in one way or another. And making hiring practices more anti-racist is a way to make anti-racist policy. And then you may be thinking like a lot of our listeners, I don't have a lot of power in that area either. Mm-hmm. Like that's HR. Um, I think there's a mm-hmm. stigma to asking employers about, hey, what are our DEI efforts? But that's a way that anybody listening tomorrow mm-hmm. could work to be an anti-racist. I started a, a new job a year and a half ago or so, 
and I've been helping with some of the DEI stuff and it happened because I like went to my supervisors and I was like, hey, what are our DEI short-term and long-term priorities? If we don't have any, that's all right. Like, can I help brainstorm and mm-hmm. what those can be? I think that's one example. But yep. I think to your point, let's have like, that's what we want to work on. I think a lot of people want out of this podcast is what can white men do to be anti-racist right. and like tangible steps. So great question. Let's have a, let's talk more about that. Yeah. But do you have any other like, thoughts for now about that no i think one thing to think about as far as white men like for better or worse we're listened to right so so when you went to your employer and said we should do something about this you're more likely to be listened to than if you know a black woman would go and talk about it because there could be a potential i don't don't know anything about your employers but in a lot of cases the employer could be like this is just another angry black woman right right yeah and these the racist ideas kick in because there's the combination of racist ideas and then defensiveness and, and so when you when you have someone who is of color coming to someone in power, you know, regardless of, of your identity, if you go to someone in power and, and criticize them or say you got to do more, there's going to be defensiveness. Yeah, that's what, right. that's how white supremacy works. Yep. But if you if that person is a person of color, right, there's going to be greater chances that their concerns are going to be dismissed or minimized or ignored or they're going to be labeled, yeah, again, angry yeah. or emotional or, you know, anything like that. Yeah. Right. And again, it's, it's just the reality. It's a horrible reality, but it, it is what it is in a lot of cases. So being a white male, like if you were to go to those in power, you're more likely going to be listened to. Yeah. And, and more likely you're going to be treated, you're going to be believed and respected and, you know, listened to. And yeah. again it's it sucks that's the way it is but that's but that is how white men can leverage the power that we have yes that is how we take steps to be anti-racist you know regardless of our position because even if you are on the quote-unquote lower rungs of the organization you know you may not have that positional power but you do have quite a bit of power due to your identity i completely agree you're so right it's a way that we white men can really have an impact and you're right that it's too bad that that's the reality and we want to make it so that in workplaces anyone any identity can speak up without being labeled without Mm -hmm. fear but that does not exist right now and i think the next step and maybe we can we can probably dig more into this in later episodes but once once we kind of a foothold with that that like someone in like in your case too like yeah this is great go ahead here are the reins dig into some dei stuff that's where we got to be like all right how can i amplify yes bring in people of color because exactly. our, our instinct as white men will be like oh good yeah i got control of this is my thing yes. and i'm gonna run the whole show yeah and so we need to really check that that impulse and be like, okay, now now that I've convinced the big wigs to to do something here, now I have to bring in some folks of color yes. and maybe even step back. Yeah, you're right. right? And maybe say have like, them lead what's right. needed. What's right. yeah, don't speak for another group or assume, mm-hmm. but be mm-hmm. there to support, and that's still really important too. Right. And that's something that we want to think about with this podcast is that role that we can play because you're right that's like the instincts like awesome let's set this up i'm gonna make the best Mm -hmm. like dei strategy but that that shouldn't happen like we you know there needs to be other folks leading it at least you Mm -hmm. know leading what's needed what are you seeing what are you hearing how can i help and figuring out what that role is it's okay to not be a leader but being someone that's working on it with them because white mm-hmm. white men white folks and white men are needed in it and mm-hmm. they need to participate and they they need to show up mm-hmm. and they need to help if voices need to be raised to, to play that part too yep I'm glad you brought that up to wrap up this the the discrimination against Asian Americans you know one thing I wanted to say housing discrimination is so impactful we talk about it with redlining mm-hmm. with black folks and how that has created just a cycle of poverty and crime that we've talked about that happened for Asians as well I mean mm-hmm. they segregated into neighborhoods and now they're known as Chinatowns Japanese towns Korean towns and white people by the way, want to live in those areas now because now they're cheek and cool and and there's this big gentrification of Asian Americans out of Chinatowns that is existing, but that's a whole nother conversation. Well, yeah, that's, you know, we're getting to like fetishizing other races, which is... Yeah. Yeah. It's another, it's a really, yeah, that's a whole nother thing. But just this idea of you can, you can hate or be so anti-race, but also fetishize a race, which I'm, I'm sure was the case with the Atlanta shooter. Yeah. Right. right? And we could really dig into this paradox of hatred towards another race, but also this sort of weird affinity towards it as well. Yes. Yep. 
And finally, there was propaganda. So we talked about propaganda. There was propaganda against Asians emphasizing and exaggerating stereotypes. And one of the big stereotypes that has been perpetuated forever against Asians is the racist notion that Asians as a race are dirty, sickly, carriers of deadly diseases. So that really connects us to COVID-19. So when people started blaming Asians for this disease, it was nothing new. You know, Asian Americans were saying it was nothing new. They were waving the red flags. They had seen this before and seen where it could go. And then what happened? Increased hate crimes against Asian Americans. And then most recently in a mass shooting. There's these questions like, what was the shooter's intention? You know, to believe that the shooter didn't have any racist intention is is to deny a 300-year threat of racism against Asians. I mean, to ask what the intention is, it's just, it's moot. It doesn't matter. This is a racist act because of the racist systems that have been perpetuated forever. So I think there's more to be said and more to be talked about here. We didn't spend a whole lot of time on the actual shooting that took place in Atlanta. And I think that it was really important to lay a foundation of what happened before this and why we might see a shooting like that targeted towards Asian Americans. I think since there's more to be said, we could talk in the next episode and really hone in on the shooter because this isn't just one isolated incident of a male shooting many, many people. We're seeing a pattern of mass shootings and almost all of them, we probably have some, we'll have some statistics next time, but almost all of them are men. So I think it's really, it's, it's important to call that out. We are seeing a pattern of men and assault rifles too. Like uh, I also saw a a meme or a picture or whatever that showed like the last dozen mass shootings were all AR-15s. It was the same exact gun. So we're, you know, there is a pattern here and and we'd be remiss not to bring that up. And it's a heavy conversation, but I think it's important. Yeah, and and to to give you something to talk about is is I'd like to hear more about the second amendment. Because that is a very relevant, and always is a relevant conversation when, you know, it always happens. When there's a mass shooting, the whole thing about the Second Amendment comes out. You have people who defend the Second Amendment, and you have people who say it's not relevant anymore today. So I think it would be interesting to look into that, to look at an NRA, to look at how gun control is something that really benefits white people, and white men specifically, and how, kind of what we talked about earlier in this episode, how white men get the benefit of people being sort of shocked mm-hmm. that a white man would do something like this and you know looking into the history of this white man and what it led up to this and how could someone like that do something like that you know all this yeah so i think there's a lot there's a lot to there's a lot to unpack we haven't said unpack for a while <laughs> we so, We've so i'm gonna throw it out there yeah <laughs> so there's a lot to unpack is is, is yeah. And it's easy for you and I to sort of separate ourselves from from someone like, I don't even know the shooter's name. I, I think I was like, deliberately, I don't even want to know his name. But clearly there is, there's something here. So yeah, like you said, we're not going to have many answers, but we're going to definitely take a look into but it. But it's an time. important conversation, I think, to have. Because it's very prevalent in our society, clearly yeah. far more prevalent. So at least worth having the conversation. We'll do that next time. Cool. Thank you for listening to The Modern White Man. Please follow us on Twitter at The Modern White Man for updates on new episodes, and please feel free to shoot us a note with questions or thoughts for future episodes. As always, if you are enjoying this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and share, both individually and on social media. That's how we get the most traction. After all, the more white men that have these conversations, the better.